You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is historian Andrew Nagorski. He wrote a book. He's written more than one book, but he wrote a book and it's called 1941. I read it a few months ago. It is a terrific survey of that seminal year in not only American, obviously, but world history. Andrew's also uh, written books on the Nazi hunters, Hitler land. And uh, if you look up the reviews of these books, you'll see they're 100% positive. Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and of course, the most important review, the Leaders and Legends podcast. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Robert. A pleasure to be here. Uh, tell us a little bit, please, about your background and how you came to be both a journalist at Newsweek and also a history writer in Buff. Well, I guess I have it a little bit in my DNA. Uh, my fam- my parents grew up in Poland before the war. They were married in 1938, just before the war broke out. Uh, and uh, then my father was in the Polish army. Of course, the Germans defeated the Polish army pretty quickly. He fled to France, where Polish units were regrouping, ended up in the UK with Polish units under British command. And then they stayed uh, for a while after the war in Scotland, where he had been based most of the time. And I was born in Scotland at uh, in Edinburgh. Uh, and that's why, by the way, why I'm Andrew, St. Andrew of Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, and, my, uh, my son's name is Andrew, but he's actually named after the sheriff of Mayberry. Oh, OK. <laughs> well, that's just as good, right? Uh, and... Uh, the fact that I seem to have lost my Scottish accent may have something to do with the fact that when I was less than a year old, about 10 months old, my parents went to the United States because there was no going back to Poland at that stage. It had been taken over by the Soviet Union, the communist regime. My grandfather was in the Polish government in exile in, in, in London, which was the anti-communist government. And my father had also been involved with him after his military service. So we, I grew up in the United States initially, 
But then my father, my immigrant father eventually became a U.S. Foreign Service officer. And when I was growing up, we lived in places like Seoul, South Korea, uh, yeah, Cairo, Egypt, Paris, France. And then uh, and so I spent a lot of my school years in those countries ro roaming the world. And then I came back to the States for college, uh, taught high school a little bit after college, and then went into journalism, which somewhat following my father's career because he had become a war correspondent at the end of the war for the Polish army. Um, and I'd always, and as a journalist, I worked, started working at Newsweek. I ended up with assignments, some in Asia, but mostly in Europe, mostly in country, in Germany, Poland, Russia, and going covering those, th those areas, the war and its legacy, uh, the Holocaust and its legacy, all of this kept coming up in one form or another. And so I would write various stories about anniversaries, about survivors, about people who had fought on both sides, uh, both sides of the war. Mm -hmm. And gradually I began to realize there's so many stories here I'm collecting and time is running out. And I began writing books on the subject. I, I thought at first I was a bit intimidated about it because there's so many great his, historical studies of this period. You know, the William Shirer books, the, sure. of course, not to mention here, of course, Churchill's huge uh, production. Uh, but I realized even with everything that's out there, there are always new angles, new stories, and everybody I interviewed always had something interesting to say. And so I then began thinking I'd write one book, which at first, one of my first books was about the battle for Moscow in 1941 and 1942, which is something I returned to in, in this latest book, 1941, the year Germany lost the war, but also about Hitler's rise to power, the fascination, not only with the man, but how was it possible for a nation to follow this man to basically to their, to their destruction into the destruction of so many others. Uh, so it's a, I find this whole period is fascinating because it's not just about one particular country or one particular movement. It's about human psychology and the best and the worst of leadership uh, in these areas and the best and the worst of human behavior. Were you over in Europe when the wall came down? Yeah, I was before and after in Europe. Uh, the day the wall came down, I happened to be in Washington because I had done a brief stint be in Washington between assignments, but I then went back. So, I mean, I, I was lucky enough. I, I was based in Moscow twice. First time in, in the Cold War days, 1981-82, I was expelled from Moscow, by the way, then. The Soviet authorities didn't much like my reporting. Oh, wait a second. We can't just gloss over okay. that. So you were expelled because you were too critical or you just weren't uh, adhering to the the Byzantine rules they provided? No, it, it was, I mean, there were Byzantine rules, but that those rules could be an excuse if they wanted it to. to. They, they made it very clear I was expelled because I didn't like the kinds of stories I was covering, the people I was interviewing, the places I was traveling. Uh, in those days, Lenin Brezhnev was still in power. Uh, the Politburo was in real trouble. There was a war in Afghanistan, the Soviet war in Afghanistan. 
in Poland, there was a solidarity movement, which was rising up against the communist system. And I was trying to find echoes of it in the Baltic states. I was touching on a lot of very sensitive topics. And they made it very clear early on they were not pleased. So when I was traveling, I was tailed very overtly by the KGB. My tires were slashed on one occasion when I went outside of Moscow to interview someone. They, they didn't want me to interview uh, so they, all these subtle hints were sent, and eventually, when I ignored them, they kicked me out. Uh, so, and that was the last—I was the last American correspondent to be expelled from the old Soviet Union, uh, purely on reporting for 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 his reporting. There were others who had other incidents, but uh, and, and, but it was a fascinating period to be there. And of course, the war and all that kept coming up too. As as a poll. I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to guess you're Catholic, but maybe you're not. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. As a Pole uh, in Europe whose family has that history, what was it like for you when um, Pope John Paul II becomes, it's Carol Wotia, right? I think is her. Yes, Carol Wotia. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when that was announced, and, you know, they say, I'd be Miss Popham. And he walks out. What was that like, that moment for you and your family? Oh, it was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. At that point, I was still, my first assignment for, as a foreign correspondent was in Asia. I was based in Hong Kong. I was a roving correspondent. But I had spent, I had grown up outside of Poland, but then I went back to Poland. I went back for the first time as a visitor when I was 17. And then I was an exchange student in Poland in college. I met and married my wife there. So she she grew up in Poland. And I remember I was traveling. I called my wife. You, you won't believe what just happened. And she it was, it was this extraordinary moment. And what was, what was also shortly afterwards, I, I got my first assignment to Moscow. And then the irony was that when I was expelled from Moscow, I then went to Rome as the Newsweek's Rome correspondent, which made me the Vatican correspondent as well. And I got to travel with Pope John Paul uh, on the papal plane. And you, 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 you had this arrangement where the Pope and his entourage basically filled up the what would be the first class cabin. And then the International Press Corps, the Vatican Press Corps was was in the back of the plane. But he would wander back there on long trips and we need to have a chance to ask a question or two. And since I speak Polish, I could at least ask him in Polish. I was just going to uh, ask you, did he light up when you ask him questions yeah. in Polish? He was an extraordinary man. He was a linguist. He could understand and reply in so many languages. I mean, one of the things I found was that when he go back there, he, the protocol was people would stand at their seats so they don't crowd the aisle. And the Pope would go down the aisle and each correspondent would have a chance to ask one question. Usually, since it was an international press corps, they were asked in many different languages. Usually he replied in the language of the questioner. So I felt I was giving him a little bit of a break when I asked him a question in Polish. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was John O'Sullivan. There's probably been more than one book, but but who wrote a book about the relationship among uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, Pope John Paul II, and uh, Margaret Thatcher. Right. And uh, I think 
I'm going to get this number somewhat wrong, but I'm I'm probably in the ballpark somehow. But he was the first non-Italian pope in 400 years, 450 yeah. years. Yeah, about four. I think it was 455 years. Right. And so please judge for us for as as an as an historian, mm-hmm. your take on the impact of John Paul II a Polish priest who had lived through World War II, um, becoming um, the supreme pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church at that time in the Cold War. Well, also, he lived through World War II, and then he lived through its aftermath in Poland, where the imposition of a communist regime by the Soviet Union, and where the church had was the one independent institution in Poland, and therefore garnered a lot of support, even from not particularly religious Poles. Uh, so he was uh, he was a man of extraordinary vision and principle and energy. He was, a, we forget because we have these images of him at the end of his papacy, but in the beginning, he was in, also very energetic, very uh, a person who skied, who, who got out and about. And uh, he, there are two major impacts, I would say. One, of course, is he inspi- helped inspire, I think, the solidarity movement in Poland, the opposition to the communist regime, not by any polit- overt political stance, but simply telling people to act and speak according to their conscience. That's all you needed in the system, which was based on lies and, and coercion. So that it, it was a real inspiration. And then he also opened up the church to the world. There had already been a trend that the church was growing more in, in non-traditional places, in Asia, in Latin America, and places. Well, Latin America, of course, it already was, was there, but Asia, Africa particularly. And he reached out, and he became the first pope to ever travel uh, to the degree that he did. The fact that I was able to travel on his plane uh, and other correspondents did, and and we're, we were often on the road. Was a result of a story of this this the fact that he was really the Pope who went everywhere and spoke to everyone. He was probably the person who was seen by more people physically than any other person in that era, uh, and he, he 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 had that outreach. So. There were, of course, lots of problems in the church that remained that were not not solved. But in terms of the position of the church in the world and also its impact on events in 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 Cold War Europe and and I think pushing Europe to end the Cold War, he 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 is right up there. You were not there when he was shot. No, I was not there. I was not. I was not in Rome when he was shot. I was I was actually in Moscow. And he was shot in May of 81, I think. Yes. Reagan was shot in March of 81. And it would have been fun to be in the room when they met each other after both of them had been shot. And I wonder who cracked more jokes. Yeah. 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 Well, well, Reagan, of course, had a famous sense of humor, but uh, the Pope also had a very sardonic humor, sense of humor. There's been a trend in the last, I would say, a couple of decades, maybe. Well, it's longer than that, but let's just stay in the last couple of decades for journalists to become historians thinking particularly of John Meekham. Uh, also there's Walter Isaacson. Mm-hmm. 
And there's a brand new book out about, I think it's Bar- Nancy Reagan, and I forget who read it, who wrote it, uh, female correspondent, journalist. I'll think of it here in a second. Yeah, I know. Cok- drawing a- yeah. Cokie Roberts has, uh, is it Su- not Susan Page, but Cokie Roberts has written two or three when she was alive, a couple of histories. Is that a natural, just in general terms and then specific to you, is that a natural transformation? Like I deal with this information all the time. I have access to all these people. And so why not me put my stamp on a particular individual or time in history? I think it is natural up to a point. It's, 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 uh, there's also the fact that as if you're, if you're a somewhat industrious reporter, you always accumulate more information than you can get into your daily or weekly journalism, whether it's into a newspaper, a magazine, a website, or in broadcast. Uh, so therefore, you have all these stories and backstories. And after a while, I realize I'd like to be able to tell those stories and to make these characters, we often look at the people who who are the political figures of our times or of recent times as almost uh, caricatures or two-dimensional figures, when in fact they are, of course, very complex figures with strengths and weaknesses, and no matter how we portray them. And uh, I think a you know, book, if you start writing hi- histories or, or just contemporary politics, it gives you a chance to get into that a lot more than you do on a daily basis. Uh, I think there's a big divide, though, between those who do kind of the contemporary political books, the quick political portraits, uh, you know, are some context right now, and then some people who then get really so involved in the background of some of these stories that then they say, well, there are also lots of great stories further back, and they are not settled stories with settled accounts. How we view history changes all the time. And I find I found it particularly, again, uh, fascinating to think about how did my the people who did basically the kind of job I did in the say the 1980s, the 1990s in Europe, uh, do that job in the 1920s and 30s and 40s in Europe when the war when when Hitler was on the rise when. Nazi Germany was threatening the whole world. And what did they understand then? How did they report then? How did they, you know, what were the means they used? And then what did they, what did they conclude? Much less, what did they do? And so I could identify with those characters. And so then when you start digging into not only their reports, but their diaries, their letters, there are all sorts of things. I even dug into somebody's expense accounts from that era. And, you know, you find... If, you, know, you get a sense of how history is never as scripted as it appears in retrospect. People, we always are guessing, what, what does this mean? Where are we going? And so I think it helps us then also better under, put our, in context our own era. The book I was referencing was Karen Tomlety, who I think is a writer for Time Magazine. Is that right? Or was? I think book, she was for the Washington Post. Washington Post. And I believe. Uh, the book is called The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. So 
we need to make sure that we reach out to uh, Karen to see if she'll come on the Leaders and Legends podcast, uh, especially given the press relationship between Nancy Reagan and uh, the, the Washington Press Corps. As someone who, who likes to read history, I find certain subjects harder to read than others. I co- I've confessed on this podcast before that I've never really read a book about the Holocaust. I don't know if I could get through it. It just seems so a, a cascade of depression. Um, but when it comes to European uh, subjects, to read a history of Poland or to be familiar with the fate of Poland through the centuries is somewhat it it makes you sad as a pole yourself how do you tackle reading polish history despite the fact that in some cases the poles were dispositive to the history of europe speaking particularly of the siege of vienna but in the 17th century as i recall but it's a very tough history and how do you how do you feel about it how do you approach it well it's a very tough history of course poland has always been wedged in between Russia and earlier what was called mostly Prussia, but Germany, and in various periods of history, uh, Poland has, its borders have moved. It practically disappeared from the map for more than a century. Uh, So you you realize, and, and you know, there's some extraordinarily heroic moments. There are certainly some extraordinary other moments which are far less heroic. And like everybody's history, there are things you are proud of. There's things you 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 squirm about a bit. But uh, I think it, if you grow up knowing the stories of Polish history, which, and by the way, you mentioned the Holocaust. Of course, most of the Holocaust happened in Poland for a reason, because it was conducted by Nazi Germany, but the largest Jewish population in in pre-war Europe was in Poland because that had once been the biggest place of refuge. Uh, So for practical reasons, uh, whatever the attitudes of of non-Jewish Poles, uh, this was was where most of the Holocaust took place, where most of the death camps were. Uh, So that too is part of that tragic history. And I've spent a lot of time, yeah, I know it's tough reading about it. It's tough. I've spent a lot of time in and out of talking to survivors of, of various stripes and and in Auschwitz itself and, and in other camps. Uh, but I think you, you can't avoid it. And what I just say is that while it can sound depressing at times, it's also there's some extraordinary tales of courage. Uh, I interviewed a man who, who has since died, but who was a courier for the Polish underground during the war, and who brought out information not about the Polish underground and coordination with with outside units, but also about what was happening in the camps and elsewhere. He was a Catholic Pole named by Jan Karski, uh, but what he went through, he actually went through through Germany during the war in disguise. And, and he had been twice interrogated by the Gestapo and once imprisoned and broke, was broken out of prison. These stories, I think, despite all the tragedy around, you sort of say, my God, people were capable of tremendous acts of courage and 
and, and integrity. And you, I think you have to cling to that for it to sure. maintain a bit of uh, a positive outlook on life. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast today is journalist and historian and proud pole, I guess we should say, Andrew Nagorski. He wrote a book. He's written several books, but this latest one is called 1941, The Year Germany Lost the War. I read it. It's absolutely terrific. And you can find his CV and other writings and books at andrewnagorski.com, A-N-D-R-E-W-N-A-G-O-R. SKI.com. So you focused on the year 1941. The war started in 1939, September. It ended in September of 45 when the Japanese surrendered on the USS Missouri. So why 1941 over the other years available to you? Well, in part, I think that's again a product of my German journalistic past. I was always fascinated by pivotal moments in history. And one of those pivotal moments, of course, was the collapse of communism, and mostly taking between 1989 and 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, much of which I was able to witness and report on. And, and uh, to, to, be, to see how something like that happens, how improbable it seemed just a short time before, and then how the world is transformed. Then when I started writing more about the war, about its legacy, I, the more I delved into it and the more interviews I did and the more, more original uh, uh, information I gathered, the more I, I found myself looking at 1941 as that pivotal year. And here's the basic fact is that if you remember the war starts in 1939, the Germans invade Poland. And then they they move one after a while they move west and they invade they they manage to take over most of continental Europe the Benelux countries France uh, Norway Denmark uh, they also before that had managed without firing a shot to dismember Czechoslovakia and annex Austria so. At that point, in, if you go to the beginning of 1941, Hitler is riding high. It looks like everything he's, he, he planned is succeeding. He controls uh, most, most, of, most of Europe, as I say, most of continental Europe, Western Europe. And the only country holding out is Britain. It's the sole holdout. And, and of course, that gets us to Churchill. In the meantime, the United States is still officially out of the war. And the Soviet Union, Stalin's Soviet Union, is a de facto ally. They had signed a pact. They had planned, they had dismembered Poland together. And the Soviet Union was sending all sorts of supplies to Nazi Germany. Stalin hoped to get to that way also to prevent Hitler from thinking of turning east. So 
it would seem everything was going well for him. By the end of 1941, of course, you have Pearl Harbor, which brings America into the war. You have the Hitler has had invaded in mid 1941 the Soviet Union, which pitted him against a, against a major power, and you and suddenly the lineup is completely different. Uh, and Hitler's early victories in the Soviet in, in the Soviet Union are beginning to beginning to look like hollow victories because his armies are being being slowed both by the Russian winter and by fiercer resistance than he thought. And so at the end of it, you actually have, especially once Pearl Harbor happens, and and Hitler, by the way, declares war on the United States before the United States declares war on him. After Pearl Harbor, you know, FDR calls for, for war on Japan, but not on Germany yet. Yet Hitler is so eager to go in, he he declares war on the United States. It's like, it's like point, December 11th, I think, is the day. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Four days after Pearl Harbor. And, and, is, and at that point, Churchill, basically, as he writes in his memoirs, he said, I knew we had won. Not that we had won right away. But if you have the United States, the Soviet Union, Britain lined up against Germany, Italy, and Japan, it, 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 the odds long term, once we can turn things around and get production going and so forth, are that uh, we've got to win. And, 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 and that's the turning point. So my, my book in 1941, I try to explain how all this happened and also the relationship between the main players, between Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin, and then what was Hitler's crazy internal logic constantly escalating this battle until he had to lose it so that that's that's the theme of the book it seems that a, a re reoccurring theme in history is especially with regard to world war one and other sort of proximate conflicts in the late middle to late 19th century is we have to fight them now because in X number of years, they will be so much stronger than us. We can't fight them. Uh, exactly. So much of the so much of the war fever uh, that accompanied the summer of 1914, especially on the German side, was fear of Russia. That eventually they're just they're so big, they may be clumsy as hell, but they're so big and they have so many resources that if we're going to fight them, now's the time. Was that Hitler's? view as well the relative not the absolute strength but the relative strength of germany compared to its neighbors and enemies was only going to be in his favor in the early years of the war yes in fact it was and many even some of his advisors his military and civilian advisors were telling him look this is a very risky proposition to, to go to war, particularly at first with the Soviet Union, because their population is much bigger, their manpower pool is much bigger, they have vast natural resources, and then with the United States. In part, uh, Hitler never, especially the United States, never believed that the United States was going to be a serious uh, adversary. He said, this is a nation of immigrants, of these mongrel nations, 
they can't really fight. They got into World War I at the end, but they weren't re really involved for most of it. And he constantly underestimated the potential of the United States. While Churchill, for instance, understood it perfectly well. He was once told by a pre, an early foreign minister when he was a young politician, think of the United States as this giant furnace. <laughs> once you, you know, it takes a long time to warm it up and light it. But once you do, and it's chugging along, it, its production capabilities are are, wasn't, are endless. Wasn't that, <laughs> Sir, wasn't that Sir Edward Gray who said that? Yeah, that's right. Very good. Quiz from uh, <laughs> Thank you. very good, but they were acutely aware of the industrial strength of of the United States and Hitler, who clearly had natural resources on his mind besides his his psychotic racial theories when it came to the right. Soviet Union. He almost seemed to dismiss that, and I always found that incongruent. He clearly understood that Germany didn't have the resources it needed to continue the war. That's why the invasion, one of the reasons why the invasion of the Soviet Union was so important to him. Right. But that when it came to the United States, the greatest arsenal of democracy, for lack of a better term, in the world, he just seemed to be kind of like, well, they're over there and they're preoccupied with Japan and we'll get our job done before they can fire it up. Yeah, he always managed to rationalize things for his own, for it to 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 see it in the most optimistic point of view from his perspective. So, when he attacked the Soviet, when he was about to attack the Soviet Union, and some of his planners said, "Look, they, they, you're you're taking on more basically than than you should be, uh, because if this goes on for any length of time, they'll mobilize more troops. Even if we wipe out the first groups, uh, you know, for, in the first battles go well." And they will they will mobilize their resources. He said, "Well, then that means we just have to beat them quickly." So the the argument is used precisely. You know, the people who are trying to convince him not to invade are told, "Okay, this your arguments that this in a long war we're going to win, we're going to lose. That means we have to make it a short war." And he convinced himself that they could have a short war because of the superior supposed superiority of the German soldiers, so forth. With the United States, it was also, as you say, he once Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, especially, he always underestimated the United States, but he once Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, he convinced himself, he actually said to his generals, this is great news, because now the U.S. will be bogged down in the Pacific, and up till then, the U.S. had been supp sending supplies to Britain under Lend-Lease, but also to, to the Soviet Union. But now they'll have to devote all their resources to the war in the Pacific, and they won't be able to do a two-front war. Well, in fact, the United States could do both far, far better than Germany could. I don't want to sound too much like a, a proud American, although I would plead guilty to that charge. Do you believe or, or is there a case to be made that the American effort in World War II is underrated in the sense that to to create what is probably the greatest fighting force in the history of the world, and that is the United States Navy during World War II, and supply all of its allies, and do the ground troops, and basically almost single-handedly fight the Pacific War 
on the islands that it's a feat so while at the same time doing the manhattan project about the atomic bomb but it's it's a feat almost it's certainly without parallel or precedent in world history that it just doesn't get enough credit for what the united states was able to do in that war no i think all those things you said are true it's a magnificent feat but i would add one caveat the reason we and the british particularly were able to defeat hitler aside from our commitment of resources and men and so forth, was you also have to point out that that Hitler's armies suffered their greatest losses on the Eastern Front. About 80% of German casualties happened at the hands of the Red Army and going into Russia, often not even at the hands of the Red, Red Army, sometimes just a little being lost in the Russian winter and in horrible conditions. And remember uh, uh, that Hitler, for instance, was so confident of easy victory against this Red Army that he sent his troops in in June of 41 without winter uniform saying, we'll have one by then. And by the winter, of course, they were stuck there and freezing. Uh, so these losses combined with all the things you mentioned about the United States, its economic mobilization, its, its ability to fight Japan across the Pacific, uh, the Manhattan Project, of course, uh, and then and supplying, you know, having the supply lines to then open the Western Front and D-Day and so forth are all part of this. So I just... I think there are there are Russians, for instance, who are understandably feel sometimes that they get shortchanged a little bit, but I mean, and because they they bore the largest casualties, but you also have to point out some of those casualties were a direct result of Stalin's despotic rule and mistakes at the beginning. Because Stalin, as another totalitarian tyrant, uh, sacrificed people often needlessly. Well, and I was going to say that it, I was going to say that in my follow up. I think the the estimates now are twenty five to twenty seven million Soviets. The, the estimates change from time to time. That was the last one I read. Perished during the war, and it seems that there is a both now and during the time of the war a supreme acknowledgement that without the meat grinder of the Eastern Front, the Western Allies could never have invaded France. Like if if Germany had another two million troops sitting in France, that that makes D-Day well nigh impossible. And and that's conjecture. But the Soviet Union's role in winning that war, I think, is getting more and more. Let's say credibility, but I can't celebrate it because we're outside of the Cold War. So it's easier to praise the Soviets. Is that something that you're seeing in historical scholarship? Well, yes, I mean, more of an acknowledgement of the role of the Soviet Union in grinding down the, the Nazi war machine, absolutely. But it's such a mixed picture, it's a mixed legacy, even after the Cold War, because, of course, Stalin was, uh, Hitler had his, had his reign of terror, that was one of the reasons why he lost, ultimately, because his own, he could have, when he invaded the Soviet Union, for instance, pretended at least to be a liberator and treated people semi-decently, but he immediately started his policy of mass murder and 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 uh, turned everyone against him. 
Stalin was also guilty of mass murder. Uh, and then they have then of conquest and subjugation of the people of Eastern Europe, including Poland. So I think it's very hard for people, depending where you are, to look at the Soviet role and simply say, okay, they contributed to victory. They did. No question. They had a huge role in the victory over Nazi Germany, but it's a very complicated legacy. And again, the if you look, you mentioned the 25 to 27 million estimated Soviet citizens who died. Probably it's estimated that all close to 9 million of those were military personnel. But again, it was because of Stalin's huge mistakes. In the beginning, he, he refused to believe that Germany was going to attack the Soviet Union. He thought he really had a deal with Hitler, and he didn't mind dealing with Hitler. Just uh, which was uh, later he would he would pretend he'd never done that. Uh, and but Churchill would remind him. Yeah, well, Churchill would remind him, but also Churchill. Remember, he said, "Yeah, yeah." When 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 uh, as Hitler invaded the so he had his armies invade the Soviet Union at one point. Yeah, Churchill was elated because he knew he needed Russia in the war against Germany. But one of his young aides, a man by the name of John Colville, asked Churchill, well, don't you feel a little unease now coming to the aid of Russia, a country whose regime you hate and you've always denounced? And he said, well, if if the devil invaded Nazi Germany, I'd have a I'd have a good good word to say about the devil. So, you know. he, uh, if you had to choose, this is an unfair question, so I'll just tell you in advance. But I, I think you, I think you can come up with an answer. If you had to spend um, an evening with either Hitler or Stalin, whom would you choose to get a chance to interview? Oh boy, <laughs> uh, it would depend on which, which, yeah, ideally. In the uh, in kind of my old journalistic day, I said, "Okay, I, I'll take one of each, and then be able to pair them." <laughs> uh, but uh, it would not be a pleasant exercise. Yeah, both of them were prone to monologues, first of all, which is tough as a journalist. Right, journalist. Uh, when you have a leader who's prone to monologues and being, and I I read the accounts of many journalists who interviewed Hitler, and his his monologues, his ramblings were is. It was often one of the reasons why he was so underestimated. He seemed so, so in his own world and didn't make eye contact. And, right. uh, but while Stalin could be more engaging, he could have uh, appear to have a little bit of a sense of humor. He could have sort of a glimmer in his eye. And uh, so, uh, but, you know, they both were dripping with blood and, uh, I'm not sure I've quite got to your question, but uh, yeah, no journalist would refuse an, an interview. Yeah, would be glad any you'd be glad for an interview with with either because you know it's the job of a journalist to meet meet these people. I guess maybe maybe Stalin because I think it would be less predictable depending on the mood you caught him in. With Churchill, with Hitler, it'd be fairly predictable. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast, and we're talking with historian and journalist Andrew Nagorski, who wrote the book 1941. Let's talk for a little bit about the the waltz, maybe that's the right word, that the United States did during 1941. Um, 
anyone who's read just even superficial levels of history of World War II understand that Britain was desperate for United States help, if not United States direct participation. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who was president, campaigned in 1940. He didn't want to get the United States into war, much like Woodrow Wilson did in 1916. Uh, but we all knew where the Americans, where the United States sympathies were placed. How did President Roosevelt navigate that year to try to be as helpful as he could without necessarily uh, making a decision that put his political career in jeopardy? Yeah, he was a savvy politician. He knew he could not afford politically to come out and say, we're going to have to get in this war eventually. I think he realized by 90, certainly by 1941, that they were heading in that direction. But he didn't want to do it in a way where it appeared he initiated it. As I mentioned, he even waited until for Hitler to declare war on the United States first after Pearl Harbor rather than for him to declare war. But the key thing here, again, is the Churchill-Roosevelt relationship and how they helped each other. Churchill understood that Roosevelt was in a different, difficult situation politically. So he tried to bring him along, but not appear to be pushing him. And he had a lot of cabinet members who were saying, come on, get these Americans going. They shouldn't be sitting on the sidelines, even if they're supplying us with things. They're, we are in desperate straits. And it was desperate straits. And another contrast to the beginning of 41, to the end of 41, the beginning of 41, there were people who were unsure whether Britain could hold out. A lot of people, and including, including some of uh, Churchill's own people. When he became prime minister in May of 1940, at one point he turned after he, he was appointed by King George, he left the Buckingham Palace and he turned to his bodyguard and said, who congratulated himself, I just hope I'm not too late. And he meant it. He wasn't sure. And, so, and for instance, one of his real supporters, Harold Nicholson, a young MP, had, had, who kept going out publicly and saying, we're going to win this war. But in private, he wrote to his wife, well, it's a good thing we have those two little pills. He meant cyanide pills. They were yeah. ready to commit suicide because if the Germans occupied Britain, he said, I, can, I don't mind being killed by, basically by these guys, but I'm not going to be tortured by that. Uh, so it was a desperate situation, but Churchill kept his cool and kept bringing, you know, pushing for more American support, but without overdoing it. And they developed a real rapport, even though at first they were a little wary of each other. If Roosevelt saw Churchill as a bit of this old colonialist leader, British colonialist. Right. Uh, and, 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 and at first, uh, Churchill was not necessarily that impressed with, with Roosevelt, but they really developed a rapport. And then they met in, in the Mid-Atlantic uh, in, in 41 to map out war strategy, even though America was officially not yet in the war. There, there were there was secret talks between British military and American military on coordinating things way before the war started. And I, to me, the relationship is really summed up by one, one little story about Churchill and Roosevelt when Churchill finally, after Pearl Harbor, after the U.S. declares war, it's December, late, it's December, late December 41, 
and and Roosevelt invites Churchill to come across the Atlantic, come to the White House, and and and, he, and to stay in the White House. And he stays in the in in one of the rooms in the White House, and of course Churchill loved to to work in in bed in the bathtub, smoking a cigar, dictating, and so forth. And Roosevelt, since he was in a wheelchair, spent a lot of time in the residential rooms too, bedrooms too, and they would sometimes just go in and out of each other's bedrooms. And what? And there was this one incident where Roosevelt had been dictating a memo to his aide uh, in the bathtub. He gets up, puts on a big bathrobe, and keeps dictating his bedroom. At that point, uh, Roosevelt rolls in on his wheelchair. And it, at that very moment, also, the bathrobe falls off Churchill. And Churchill, turn, without missing a beat, turns to, to Roosevelt and says, you see, Mr. President, we have nothing to conceal from you. Uh, it's, you know, there is humor in that relationship. There is affection that grows. Contrast that to, say, Hitler and Mussolini, where they are both jealous and mistrustful of each other. All of these things are also important for leadership. And that relationship really thrives because of the personal rapport between these two men. A few minutes ago, I asked you about the the, the doctrine or the, the foundation of inevitability. Mm-hmm. The fights, as Lincoln said at the beginning of the Civil War, the tug has to come. Might as well come now. Japan's mindset. Was it similar in the sense that for us to create this uh, co-prosperity sphere where they had this this significant uh, hegemonic influence in East Asia, did they believe that the only way that's going to happen is if we take on and defeat the United States? And did that make their actions in their sense in that conflict inevitable? Again, in history, I don't think anything's quite quite inevitable. But once they decided they had to take on the United States, it was a bit like Hitler's decision to take on Russia, that they felt you've got to strike early, hard, and win quickly. Uh, and it was all an illusion that they could do that. They managed to, of course, hit Pearl Harbor. It would take quite a quite quite a lot of battles and island hopping for the U.S. to come back and and win. But uh, I think the same mentality was there. That yes, we know that the overall odds are not great. You know, you look at say the Allies and the Axis powers. The Allies had about three times the population as as the Axis powers, Germany and in Italy and, and Japan, about uh, at least twice the resources, seven times the territory. So again, just the cold math tells you this is not going to work out very well. But yet, these leaders managed to convince themselves that they had that that they could do it. Uh, that their armies and so forth, with 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 quick victories. Uh, this was the age, especially in Europe, under Germany, of the Blitzkrieg. And the idea of lightning strikes, uh, but uh, and and once they went down that road, and it, it's very hard also in any dictatorship for people to say, "Oh no, wait a minute, 
you're about to make the wrong turns. Uh, people, mm-hmm. and this is not going to end in victory. It's going to end in defeat. People don't usually speak up that way in a dictatorship. In your opinion, did Japan ever have a chance to win that war, win that theater, or maybe even Hitler as well? You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about how, you know, in the beginning of 1941, Hitler's sitting pretty and just in the spring, I think, is when he takes over Yugoslavia and Greece. So basically by by late spring, early summer, 1941, Hitler controls the entire continent save for the, some Scandinavian countries, Spain, and the countries who aren't under his direct control are certainly under his thrall one way or the other, whether that's Italy or Vichy France, but or well, occupied he, France, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think the key decision again was the Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. If he had stuck with the gains he had in the rest of Europe, I think he could have held on to power for quite a long time. And if, if uh, he just simply kept Stalin as this de facto ally who sends him supplies and we have our demarcation of the conquered territories between us, you know, they actually had a map of Poland, how we're dividing it up. That was part of their agreement in August of 39. And the Baltic states, when and so forth, uh, I think the war could have gone on a long, long time. I think eventually Hitler was doomed to fail, and certainly Japan was doomed to fail. But it could have been an even longer war, and even some of the tactical mistakes Hitler made after initially scoring big victories in in the invasion of the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was so ill prepared because of Stalin's poor leadership at that point, he then made some very big tactical mistakes about where to send his troops, how to how to deploy them, and and he overstretched them. Even if he, if he had not met, if if they he had he had avoided some of those, that too might have prolonged the war. And as, so you think about the war, which went from we we date the war usually 1939 to 1945, it could have gone on even longer, which would, would have meant even more tragedy even more casualties i read an article recently in a british history magazine and the author of this particular article basically made the point that britain needs to get over itself when it comes to world war ii like okay we did what we did and okay yeah maybe it was our finest hour but we need to stop talking about it so much and we need to stop celebrating it so much what would be your reaction to that line of thinking I think I disagree. I mean, I think you do any country that put up the fight that Britain did uh, deserves to commemorate it and commemorate the people who who fought and who who saved. And by the way, it wasn't just British citizens involved. Uh, Again, without, you know, uh, appearing to be too. Uh, ethnocentric, but uh, there, you know, the, in the Battle of Britain, there were a lot of Polish and Czech pilots who, were, right. who had a huge role in the Battle of Britain in, in stopping the Luftwaffe. Uh, so I think the people, those battles deserve to be, and those victories deserve to be celebrated. There was, the sacrifices were huge. Uh, and 
you know, it doesn't mean that you then say all of our history was a glorious history and everything we did was right in, in other parts of our history. But I think there's a there's a legitimate reason for patriotism uh, in Britain, the United States and a number of countries, uh, which, yeah, again, you don't want to sanitized version, or you don't want to do what, for instance, Russia under Putin has done, which is basically just say, okay, we had, we'd, we'd help, we were the major players in defeating Hitler, and we did you know, all good things during World War II. Well, it wasn't all good things. And uh, even though they did play a major role in defeating Nazi Germany. One last question about Poland before we move to the five questions with which we end all Leaders and Legends podcasts. Poland disappears off the map in the late 18th century, partitioned three separate times by Austria, Russia, and Prussia. And you correct my history if I get this wrong, please, Andrew. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. Then it's created, recreated as a result of the Treaty of Versailles, 1919. And then it is again, partitioned between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, only to be reconstituted after the war, but be behind Churchill's famous, famous Iron Curtain. Why is Poland, or why has Poland been such a subject of these partitions and What's what's the mindset of of an eighty to eighty five year old Polish man or woman living in Krakow or or Warsaw or uh, Gdansk today about their country's history and and it seems ill fated situation in Europe? Well, I think there's it's it's a history born of geography. First of all, if you have the you have Poland whatever shape, political shape it was in uh, between essentially what is Germany and what is Russia, these two great empires, and then you before that, you also had the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, meant that the borders keep moving, and, and Poland is a big flat plain for the most part in, in much of central Poland, where tanks or cavalry can go rolling through or charging through. And it's one of those accidents of history. I, as a kid, I lived for a while in South Korea. It's Seoul. And the Koreans would say, well, it's a little bit like we uh, Korea, which is caught between China and Japan in its history. And two great powers right. and at various points in its history. Uh, it disappears. It is occupied by either. And then, try, but tries to survive as a nation, tries to keep its language, its it, it, its identity, and so I think it's I think it's not all by no means all torment. It's it's also a sense of pride that even in the worst period during those partitions, for instance, in the 19th century, there were there were there was underground education. There were classes. There were they tried to maintain their 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 sense of Polish patriotism even when there was not a Poland. Uh, so. And that also plays over, rolls over into, say, the communist period. Why was probably the biggest opposition movement to the communist regimes in Poland? Because the Poles were pretty good at underground activity about organizing. Right. 
and they had underground presses and they had they formed the underground trade union and 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 also they had the catholic church which was which which uh served as stalin felt was one institution he couldn't crush completely so that could be a, a place of refuge and and shelter for some of the for independent thinking uh, so yeah they, it's a very difficult history but it one which also you know people have a lot of pride in parts of that history one question I forgot to ask at the beginning, so I'll ask it very quickly, but it was something that I always think about when I read these World War II histories, especially the beginning of the war. How did Hitler pay for all this? How did Germany not collapse into some sort of, of economic uh, catastrophe? Obviously, if you're f- relatively familiar with German history, you know about the hyperinflation under the Weimar Republic. and right. and But it doesn't does not appear that Hitler that Germany suffered any sort of economic devastation as a result of his massive rearmament campaign. Well, his massive rearmament campaign put people back to work and helped get them out of the depression in some ways. So there was that. And there was, you know, Germany did have a lot of wealth. And of course, then they had a huge amount of stolen wealth, acquired wealth as they occupied different territories. But, there was there's no doubt that their chief economic planners, one of whom I write about in my book, 1941, a, a, a general uh, yeah, Thomas uh, felt that you know, we were stretching our financing to the limits. And again, this was another thing that that you, know, you can the idea that you can only survive using slave labor, plundering other countries is not going to work that well. They, for instance, they always targeted the Ukraine as this great resource of agriculture and so forth. But it was starved under Stalin and then doubly starved under, under Hitler. So their productivity and all could not be as great as, as, as they thought. But yeah, and, and basically, if you reduce people to slave-like conditions, it, again, that you, know, you do not achieve the greatest results in the long run. And so... They managed to do it longer than you would have thought possible, but eventually all of that caught up with them. With the, with the great irony that, that, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, Stalin was basically selling Germany all these raw materials. Yeah. And so Germany had access to the Soviets' riches, but as soon as they invaded, those supplies were cut off. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the, it was only what they could take by force. And that's quite different. And you exa- and you pay a price for that. And they quickly began to pay a price for that. We've reached the point on the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask our guests, in this case, Andrew Nagorski, the five questions. Are you ready, sir? All right. <laughs> I have no idea what they were and what they are, but I'll, I'm game. <laughs> they are they are pathetically harmless, I promise. <laughs> Number one, what was your first job? My first job was out of out of college. I was a teacher at Wayland High School outside of Boston. That's a suburb of Boston. I was a high school social studies teacher. And guess what? One of my courses was modern European history. <laughs> Number two, what was your first concert? Ah, oh, my first concert. That's, you know, probably, I'm not sure it was the very first, but one of them that uh, most vivid in my memory 
when I was in in, in uh, still in uh, elementary or, or sixth or seventh grade in in Cairo, Egypt, which was our first foreign assignment, my father's first foreign assignment for the U.S. Embassy, he he, he was allowed, he he was handled the trip of Louis Armstrong, Sachmo, visit to Egypt, and so I get to got to go to Armstrong's concert, and then my father took me backstage, and I got to meet him. I still have his signed picture, and that boy. That's, that's something I cherish. <laughs> that's terrific. I hope that that's in a in a nice big fireproof box somewhere. Good for you. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? On any subject? Yes, sir. Well, if I'm yeah, if I'm talking about my the area I've sort of explored the most. The war, the, these two totalitarian systems, Germany and Russia. Probably, I would say a book called Life and Fate by a Russian writer, Vasily Grossman. Grossman was a Soviet war correspondent who wrote dispatches about the war. A lot of them were censored, so the, the original dispatches were sometimes not as revealing as the uncensored ones in the letters, which became published earlier. But he wrote a novel, which was immediately banned, of course, by the Soviet Union afterwards, which talked, uh, which, which, which plays out in, during this war and which shows how alike, essentially, Stalin's communist system and Hitler's fascist system was. And that one could be called far left, one could be far right. But when you get into the realm of extremists, extreme totalitarianism, the, the, the similarities are much stronger than the, than, than the differences. And it's, it's, it's a tough novel to get through, but it's, 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 it's powerful. It's a big, big novel. If you want to understand the psychology of both systems, I'd say that one. Number four. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Hmm. Uh, it could be sort of in a time capsule and protected. <laughs> uh, I think perhaps the Warsaw Uprising in 1944, when people rose up against all odds, there were two actually Warsaw uprisings. There was a ghetto uprising in 1943 right. and, and then the 44, the general city uprising. Both of those were amazing events. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that immediately comes to mind. And if you want for pure chill factor to just see the worst of human psychology at work, uh, the Nuremberg rallies under Hitler. Last question, and you don't have to choose between uh, Stalin and Hitler. Okay. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Anyone living today? Living today. Well, I've been lucky to to meet a lot of people, many of whom are no longer with us, some of whom actually still are. For instance, Benjamin Ferenz, the last living prosecutor of Nuremberg, who I wrote about in the Nazi Hunters, he's 101. He's still going strong. He's amazing. 
though I've been lucky to do meet and interview people like that. As I mentioned, I had a chance to meet people like John Paul, Pope John Paul. Uh, who would be today? I don't see the same class, certainly of politicians that, uh, for instance, I don't see a Churchill on the horizon right now. Uh, I'm I'm equivocating here because you, I, could, you uh, could choose Raquel Welch. I mean, it can be anybody. <laughs> well, well, that's not bad. <laughs> that's not bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there. Yeah, if we go in that direction, there are a few possibilities. Um, but let me think. Uh, you got yeah, you got me here. It's it. I, it's. Um, I would say, let's see. Right now, probably Alexei Navalny, who's in a Russian prison, the opposition leader in Russia, who has a people have mixed feelings about his personal character, but he has been amazingly uh, courageous, and he was poisoned by um, by the uh, by the Putin regime. Was a, was in Germany, recovered, and went back, and is now in prison. And again, is 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 according to his lawyers, his life is in peril. I'm always fascinated by the people who continue to say, no matter what the cost, I'm going to continue fighting for what I believe in. And in today's world, I would put Navalny up there. Terrific answer. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been journalist and historian Andrew Nagorski, wrote a terrific book called 1941, The Year Germany Lost the War. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. It was a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you. I enjoyed it, Robert. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.